Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. of The Sausage Factory. In this episode, I talk to Nick Milston and Tancred Dyke Wells of Solar Cell Games about their open-world survival action-adventure game, Smoke and Sacrifice. A bit of a mouthful, but uh, it is all of those things, I can assure you. But before we delve into that, let's talk about the other podcasts we have under the Cane and Rinse banner. On Mondays, we have Cane and Rinse, of course. This week, we have... Super Street Fighter 4 series. Very exciting. Then we have Sound of Play on Wednesdays, where we delve deep into the well that is video game music. Yes, we celebrate mute scores, if you will, from video games of the past and present. Then we have Playwright on Thursdays. Thursdays, we have Playwright where we basically create a game, two Ryan's create a game out of some ideas they've cobbled together it's it's incredibly compulsive listening you hear them come up with very strange ideas for video games it, it's great fun and of course Fridays it's the Sausage Factory which you're listening to right now go you now if you want to know more about Kana Rinse and what else we write about and produce with regards to not only podcasts but also videos and blog posts and reviews and other features, then go to canandrince.com. There's also a active forum there. I know, an active forum in 2019. Okay, but it does exist, and people are talking in it. And if you want to be part of that, then by all means, dive in. If you want to support Canandrince's work by throwing us a few shekels once a month, one dollar to be precise, one US dollar, then you can. You can actually subscribe to Patreon. If you give us $1 a month, not only will you get our eternal gratitude, but also extra content. We all like extra content. A monthly podcast exclusively to Patreon subscribers and extended editions of Cane and Rinse. And, I know, right? And there's also console features. Podcast dedicated to a single console. We've so far done the Mega Drive, PlayStation, and currently behind the Patreon paywall is the Game Boy. So if you want to listen to what we have a chat about that, then throw us some money and you better listen to it. But that's enough about what else Kane and Rinse has on the store for you. Let's go to the main feature. Take it away, past me. Tancred and Neil... Who are you and what do you do? Uh, well, hi there. Thanks for having us on the show. Um, 
Neil, do you want to go first? Okay, okay, yeah. Thanks for having us. It's great to be on on the program. Uh, I'm Neil Millstone. I'm the programmer and uh, and you know play a part in the design of Smoke and Sacrifice, like we all do on the team. Uh, I've been working in games since 2001 commercially. I started at a company called Software Creations back in 2001, um, and I've been doing programming and design ever since. But I really, I really started on the Apple II when I was four years old. But I'm sure we'll get to that later. <laughs> uh, yeah, hi, I'm Tank. Uh, Tank with Dirk Wells. Um, similarly, kind of started off in the BBC Micro back in the '80s. Uh, you know, as, as a as a kid. Um, but I've been in the industry professionally for about 20 years. Um, uh, formerly, I was creative director at Headstrong Games. Um, where I uh, devised and directed the Art Academy and Battalion Wars series for Nintendo, but yeah, more latterly, um, following midlife crisis of epic proportions, decided to go the indie route um, and team up with Neil. Um, so I'm the artist and creative director on Smoke and Sacrifice, basically. Um, and yeah, we had an absolute whale of a time making it, I guess. Thanks for Battalion Wars, oh great. <laughs> <laughs> You're very welcome. Yes. Uh, yeah, there's a big old discovered rather embarrassingly recently um which is which is quite exciting yeah yeah i think uh i mean I always link them to advanced wars and stuff like that and uh you know um you're going to tumble to stuff about current games but uh, excellent history it's interesting that a lot of guests these days when i ask them who they are they sort of rattle off then their history like that's the next question <laughs> which okay. is how did you make your start making video games um, but uh, you can delve into that, Neil. You sort of uh, hinted that uh, you're, you're obviously a programmer, so Apple Two, eh? Yeah, I mean, That's very un-British of you. <laughs> I know, I know. So um, I've got an excuse. Um, it wasn't mine. Okay, so, okay, there uh, you go. So yeah, it was because of my dad. He used them at work, and he he was an electrical engineer, and some of the equipment that he serviced uh, using Apple Two as a data collection device. So he would have a service spare and he would take it to places and swap parts in and out. And very occasionally he would have a whole machine. And those were the great weekends where I used to mess on it. And I learned basic. He he, he showed me basic and basically that was where my life was set from then on, really. Um, and it was just amazing looking at um, the games that I had on there and comparing them to what was possible in basic. And I was just, I was obsessed with finding out how you could do smooth scrolling and physics and nice audio and all of that that seemed kind of impossible it seemed like magic back then uh and i gradually found out how all that stuff was done over years and years because you know games was a secret industry in the 80s they seemed to came come they came out of nowhere there were no visible authors or creators it was all very secretive and that was just fascinating so that set me on a road to discover how how the things were made certainly back in those days it was a sense of, and we've talked about this on the show before a little bit, but it's how the there was no high level languages really. Uh, the C pluses and stuff were a pipe dream. Well, they weren't, but you know, they weren't being used for those very, very weak machines in terms of their ability. Yeah. They couldn't do high level languages. Um, the 16 bit machines could do to, a, to an extent, but not, not the 8 bits really. 
you make yeah, I mean, that. You think I'm right? I think yeah, because yeah, yeah. I mean, I had basic, but the cost of basic was you know that you couldn't do very much with it. You your interpreter ate up nearly all the power. So yeah, if you were going to yeah. do anything serious, it was assembly language, and that was also fascinating. There was this weird language full of just letters and numbers that that yeah. all the good. And you know, when I discovered that that it was just like staring into the abyss. Really, there's another whole world down there yeah i think <laughs> pretty good way yeah. of putting it actually yeah. that's, that's certainly uh <clears throat> my, my encounter with uh because you know i used to make platform games and so on in basic on my, on my vic 20 and my oh, yeah. bbc micro but assembly was definitely when me and a possible <laughs> programming career you know uh went our separate separate routes uh, i think i definitely realized that <laughs> Uh, maybe graphics was more uh, the way to go. Yeah, and it's, it's a very abstract way of thinking, I found, that uh, you have to think in terms of, and again, take a drink, everyone, but computers are, ultimately, computers now still are a series of switches, and you just have to say, if that switch is doing that, that one there, then that one has to do that. Otherwise, that won't work. And then it just creates a whole... and. Ultimately, that's what it is. And assembly is really, really, really close to doing that. You know, actually addressing, uh, looking at memory addresses and saying, well, if that's doing that, then you have to do this one. And it creates this extraordinary, it's phenomenally powerful. Of course it is. It allows us to record this show and do all these extraordinary things with computers. But it boils down to it. And I'm sure a lot of computer scientists are screaming down their, uh, driving their car. But really, they still are. Like, yeah, <laughs> I'd say that's pretty accurate. I think what what it turns into then is you're taking something that is built out of very very simple parts, and it's about managing how you take a huge number of those to make something big. You know, it's like building it's like building a chair out of individual atoms. Like, how do you manage that? If that's what the problem is, really. Yeah, and the, the, the you know when when the high level languages arrived, and that's the 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 barrier of entry dropped. And I don't think that's a negative thing at all. Uh, no. But it definitely dropped, and it suddenly realised that, you know, you don't need to hit the metal anymore, as they used to call it. And you can... It's the driver makers need to, because that's their job, um, I believe. Um, but when it comes to the creators of, of code and games and that kind of thing, it is now a, a high-level thing, which is wonderful. It's wonderful. It's brilliant. You know, uh, all the tools that's available we could only have dreamed of back yeah. in the day. And even as recently as 20 years ago, we had teams, I've worked on teams of 10 on something that we would have been able to build with one person now. Yeah. And yeah. that just, it just, it's amazing to think how far things have moved. I mean, yeah. and it, what it's allowed is this explosion of creativity that there is so much more variety and so much, yeah. so much more stuff out there. And that's really um, important. Well, yeah, that. Yeah. Okay. Um, so my next question so we skipped one, we we've merged one and two, and we've delved into that. Uh, and you know, thank you. I mean, twenty years—that's that's, that's quite a tenure. <laughs> I, feel I can tell you. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and it feels odd. it feels slightly like having come full circle to some extent because I'm now um, well, both learning and teaching my kids um, Scratch, which is uh, you know very much like going back to the old um, uh, yeah days of learning basic, really. Um, but that, that's that's a great pleasure at the moment. So, um, as as a team, as a studio, Solo Cell Games, what do you believe are your biggest influences? So, I think for me, we, as me and Tank as as well, we always wanted to make an indie together. Uh, in terms of it's every it's everyone's dream in game dev to be indie and to make what they want. 
and having you know worked on lots of big commercial games that you don't necessarily have the control over that you that you feel that would benefit it um we opportunity arose to to form an indie ourselves and uh, we jumped at it really um to some extent it, it it's like is this going to happen again you know we're at a position in our careers where um you know we're established so the opportunity where we're both you know available to do this at the same time is not necessarily something that happens very often and what we decided to make was always going to be something that was a mixture of uh the things we loved as as kids so you know tancred has played a lot of rpgs i i played a lot of 2d zelda and loved the combat and we you know we merged all the things we loved as kids into into the game yeah i think and, and speaking for myself i kind of came at it not knowing exactly what we wanted to make and, and being kind of quite deliberate about that to some extent wanting to be informed primarily by uh my unconscious, I suppose, to some extent, and let let the influences that are perhaps obvious uh, to some um, sort of sort of seep out unintentionally. So, uh, you know, it references the Dark Crystal and the City of Lost Children, um, and other f- dark fantasy films that, that probably. I mean, this all sounding a bit eighties uh, today, I'm afraid, but um, <clears throat> they were those those kind of early seminal formative kind of fantasy. Um, movies and games, which which went in there, but I think you know uh, certainly from an art point of view, I was I was trying to draw characters and creatures and situations without thinking about it too much, um, in order that I'd be, you know be drawing on on ideas without necessarily um, uh, being being too self conscious about what they were, and um, and thus hopefully allowing us to avoid some of the some of the tropes. Um, in, and, and create a fantasy world that was perhaps a little bit more original. Um, yeah, certainly, than your sort of your, your standard Tolkien-esque fare. Much as I love Tolkien, yeah, but, yeah, it reminded me a lot of Odin's Sphere when I first saw it. I thought, oh yeah, the kind of the animation and the graphical style. Was, yeah, uh, well, I'm, well, I'm always deeply flattered when people make the vanilla work <clears throat> comparison. Um, you know, <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's, it's it's not one I'll discourage, um, but I do feel slightly humble humble by it. Um, I think I think for me, we I definitely remember having a discussion with Tank where I said I didn't I didn't really like Tolkien esque fantasy games because I kind of feel like you know what you're going to see next when you're in that kind of world. I much preferred the kind of the darker ones where you know there might be something disgusting and a little bit horror influenced around the corner or something just completely bizarre that doesn't fit into the trolls and orcs world. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's something I've, I've sort of promoted on the show before. We need more people making video games who have no interest in Star Wars. Not the same. Most definitely, Wars, just, that's what we need. <laughs> and it's a glib it's statement. Pretty hard to come by. Although very, I have to say, my, very, my own interest in Star Wars is is waning year on year as, as the uh, as the movies go by, which is rather uh, sad, sad to have to deal with. But I'm, I, you know, like I, feel, Solo, I feel it's a load. I'm finally starting to shed myself. But yeah, I'm, um, I'm kind of yeah. like Solo though. But ever since. Uh, Playing games like Papers, Please and Stanley Parable and The Beginner's Guide and stuff like that, is you, you just think, oh, well, that's that's where we should be going, isn't it, really? <laughs> right. Well, you know, it's, it's people drawing on other media and other spheres, yeah. really, I suppose. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, again, that's something, you know, certainly for the visual influences here, you know, there was a lot of things where I was just drawing on things I'd see on my commute or mm. things I'd see in museums. Um, and generally, I mean, of course, that, you know, that there's 
it is also a love letter to video games. That's inevitable. And hey, it's got treasure chests and it's got exploding barrels because we love those things. Um, yep. Yep. But yep. <laughs> uh, but even there, I think, you know, we try and put a, put a twist on them. Um, yeah. so, make them look like, you know, steamer chests or, or other more peculiar uh, instantiations of those, you know, recognize, you know, there's a certain kind of language there, which we wanted to, you know, take advantage of. Um, and, and there's a, a sort of, a, there is a certain joy in, in, in the familiarity of, of some of those, those tropes as well, a certain resonance, um, which certainly I enjoy in, in other video games. But at the same time, I think, yeah, as Neil, Neil puts it, we didn't want people to know what was around the next corner. Um, and, yeah, in, in kind of creating a world that felt both gothic and uneasy and unfamiliar and 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 surprising. Um, yeah, that that was the intention. Yeah, it's uh, mm. it, it's definitely there's aspects to it. It's very beautiful, uh, and the color. Thank you. It's color. Just yes. Yeah. We don't want, we don't want brown and grey. No, we, we we don't want brown and grey. Thanks, Gears of War. We just don't. You know, no, um, we, not we, just we, them either. No, really? it wasn't. No, it wasn't just them. But I'm just sort of plucking that out. Actually, it's a bit unfair because there's lots of greens in that game as well. But um, no, it's the whole. What I love about the fact you know, talk about the barrels exploding. You know, it always amused me when you go and play Zelda, any Zelda, and you go into someone's home and smash their crockery up and just walk out. Yeah, go, no one says anything. It's like maybe take a few coins you know yeah take a few <coughs> rubies rupees i think it, it's at the heart of the whole the world revolves around the player thing yeah, which yeah, yeah it's an it's kind of one of those games abstractions to me it goes with things like loading screens and control prompts and you know i love the whole medium of video games and all those things but it's one of those things that you don't question because it's a video game and to a certain extent i wish games would move past that but you know yeah. it's got a lot of fondness from past years yeah okay well next question and this one might be tough to ask answer because you don't want to insult anyone or hurt anyone's feelings don't go don't worry <laughs> don't get wound up but the reason is you'll find out why i say that as i ask it so here we go what developer do you most admire in the industry and why oh god uh... <laughs> so, um in terms of Personally, I think um, it would have to be John Carmack. I've had this, honestly, I've had this conversation over the past week. So, I, uh, but um, I think one of the reasons is it's weird. But uh, a few months ago, I was reading his Twitter feed, and it's like every tweet that John Carmack makes it makes is a kind of quotable piece of genius computer science that. Um, that I find quite amazing. How does he come up with so many things that are like true, truly wise every single time he tweets, but someone posted in their, in the replies about some bug in rage in a quite angry and com- combative way. And his response was, I'll go and check out that bug. And I just thought for someone who invented half of computer graphics, to, to go to respond to that in that way was just amazing. Like most people would just go screw you. And what he did was go and investigate it for just some random person off the internet. And it's just, I thought that was amazing. Well, wow. he doesn't even work for uh, <laughs> um, Zenimax anymore. Just <laughs> wow. No, I think actually, and maybe it was longer ago than I yeah. thought, because I think he was working there when this happened but yeah and just the fact that you know um you know half the way that we render shadows in games is 
is stuff that he invented. Yeah. Um, texture mapping, you know, and then to do VR as well and to do all that kind of stuff to still be inventing stuff at this at this time. And then when you read what he's writing, it's the way it's progressed from, you know, an upstart, very clever person doing cool maths to the current times where he's mostly writing about uh, interpersonal matters, how you arrange a team of programmers so they don't fight with each other and how they how they get work done well. Um, I just think um, he's done the whole gamut and I don't think there's anyone else that compares to him, really. Mm. They, they, they call people like that polymaths, don't they? It's a, yeah. It's a, yeah. It's a word I mean, I've recently discovered, but yeah, it's all things to all people. I don't think he's a renaissance man. I'm sure he can't no. paint, but no. but, in, but in terms of you know programming and management, yeah. I, I don't think there would be anyone else better. Mm. Yeah, that, I mean it's a desperately hard question, and I, you know mentally been just running down all the you know all these super you know wonderful creative indie people I follow on this part, and it, it's it's almost impossible to answer. I, uh, Tim Schafer kind of comes to mind, I think. Um, simply as a, a a personality and the way he seems able to just i guess it's, it's his people people skills i, I probably um uh, admire most and 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 would wish to have but the, the fact he he can kind of move so um so smoothly i think between different spheres and and wear all those different hats you know you know being somebody who has to have the stresses of um Owning and running a company, being it being a hands-on creator who's who's, who's writing, you know, still super witty content, um, and and being an outward-facing spokesperson for the company, um, and and such an appealing personality, and, and you know, managing lots and lots of really hard to handle uh, strong creative personalities. Yeah, I mean, he, he has a lot of. Um, Skills I, I admire and would, and would <laughs> dearly love to have myself, I suppose. He's done so he's, cer- he's certainly a role model, I, w- I would say, for me. But he's, done- oh, he's a good choice. I would definitely have uh, put him on my list. Yeah, uh, I still remember laughing very, very hard over the existence of a rubber chicken with a, a wheel in the middle of it. I mean, why yeah. is that funny? I don't know, but it's just so unexpected. Like, what? <laughs> why, why is it a rubber? Okay. Okay, mm. or indeed encountering an actual red herring at a yeah, bridge. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's like, was it the massive, the massive um, metal ball that you have to, um, that's weighing you down underwater that you have to pick up in order to, in order to 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 uh, defeat it? Because obviously your inventory is infinite. So yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, it's just fourth wall breaking hilarity. Like there you go. It's stupid, isn't it? <laughs> you never thought of that. Just put it in your pocket. So, yeah. excellent responses. Thank you very much. Um, like I said, it was hard. So, well done. Last question of the first half. See, you made it. See? Here we go. One more. This one's really easy, but I have to ask it because we're recording a podcast about video games, so I have to ask this question. What are you playing right now? Oh, God. Right. Um, I'm, I'm just, I'm just playing started Owlboy. Sorry. Sorry, no, you can go first. <laughs> well, again, I'm feeling slightly paralysed. Um, I was playing playing Oddmar on iPad, right. which is a kind of Viking-themed, very pretty Rayman-esque, um, you know, 
extremely polished and competent um, Raymanesque platformer on on iPad. Really? Uh, which which is Odmar. Odmar. Um, and you know, it's it's hey, hey, it's very mainstream. It's not, I've I've got a lot of other interesting indie things on there too it does like inside inside of kind of about halfway through um behind the times with that one um but yeah just just kicked off uh Alboy on steam of late and instantly kind of quite impressed by the mechanics that's that's throwing at me within the first 10 20 minutes um god what else uh, Neil, you go quick. <laughs> okay, let's take in turns. So I've been playing a lot of Detroit over the past week. Uh-huh. Um, <clears throat> again, it's it's all about the writing, and I feel like <clears throat> all the good David Cage stuff, they know exactly how to how to pull your heartstrings. You know, um, they want to make the choices important, and um, the way they do that is by giving you a choice between, you know, you need to run over either a kindly old woman or a young girl. And you've got five seconds to make the choice. It's that kind of thing. And it works really well for me. And just, just the the art is absolutely stunning in, term, in terms of it being photorealistic. I think they're doing a lot of depth of field and camera effects to kind of hide the computer graphicness of it. And the facial the facial rendering is amazing. You could definitely mistake it for being photo, photographic. Um I'm just I'm just in, enjoying absorbing the world and and the voice acting and all the rest of it. I mean, there's not much gameplay there. That's really the the crux of it is it's basically A or B choices with a bit of walking around. But the way it's dressed up is so amazing that you kind of forget that. So yeah, okay, well, well done. That's the end of the first half. Um, excellent choices of games there. I'm gonna have to check some of those out, um, especially the iPad one. So, yeah, that's, yeah, that's it's it's well, it's you know it has become increasingly kind of a bit of a go-to platform for me just because of the uh, the yeah the utterly collapsed on the sofa or or in bed sort of a opportunity to to continue gaming that it offers um, and and but yeah yeah Switch um, does that as well but it yeah <laughs> yeah Switch is a better gaming platform than the iPad surely yes. <laughs> Let's move on to the second half of the show where we delve deep into Smoke and Sacrifice. question or well, first question whatever what is smoke and sacrifice i'm not sure it's what we expected it to be at the very outset but i can certainly but i think i think nevertheless uh, you know the, the essential dna of what we wanted to make at the outset has come through um which is to say something set in an organic living world 
sandbox-esque environment where you have a feeling that not everything's scripted, not everything's predictable, you know, enemies are not on patrol paths, but they have things have a life of their own and that strange and emergent things may occur because of the relationships that uh, other creatures and plants and, and, and entities in the world have with one another. We wanted that as our setting, but, um, you know, a world that feels alive, but we wanted a sense of narrative and purpose and, and goals um, for the player, which, you know, you can be somewhat atypical um, in games which have that, that type of setting. Um, so I think ultimately, ultimately we've ended up feeling it's a dark fantasy adventure, which is something of a catch-all because, yeah, we've drawn on several genres that, that we enjoy and, um, and incorporated uh, elements from survival games, from RPGs. Um, but, yeah, with, with the intention, really, of creating something where there's, there's, there's some meaning underlying your journey, um, you have a sense of purpose, um, and, and a sense of achievement as you progress, um, but that the world is not entirely um, artificial, that the world feels alive and, and has agents in it with, with some independence. Neil, yeah. what, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, and so, yeah, that all of that, of course. Uh, we, we wanted a world that, that felt like it would have existed without you, that you could plant a, a plant and then come back in half an hour and it would have grown up and it will do that across the world. Um, but... Also, we wanted to make sure that, that that we had there was an emotional heart to the game because a lot of games, especially sandbox type games, tend to feel like uh, a random number generator that you're responding to. You know, when you strip away the visuals, that's what they feel like. And what we wanted to do was to have a story, have a char- have characters, have things guiding you through the world that forces you to progress, so you don't end up staying in one place. Because we really like the Zelda kind of model where you you move through the world as you become stronger. And um, so we added a storyline to that that takes you through a, what turned out to be 15 to 20 hours worth of questing content. And, you know, we added a whole load of things that, uh, that worked to, to enhance that, like crafting and um, side quests and, you know, key locations that you can discover um we have our own um our own take on crafting where you discover recipes out in the world and they can be collected like items um we added a whole lot of things that we just made up on the spot as well it's a, it's a genre mix but we hope it, it's it, kind of yeah. itself it, it is a sense of genres and speaking for myself i do have something of a checkered history of of um somewhat inadvertently blending genres um certainly and biting off uh, if not more than i can chew then certainly biting off more than i intended in doing that you know battalion wars was um obviously you know tactical action game we were trying to meld aspects of uh rts's and and for first and third person shooters and 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 way back in in the late 90s i did something called biosis which was essentially a, a, a point and click adventure like mist but set in a in a simulated um, biosphere type type environment, with much as in this game, you know, active ecosystems, plants, um, creatures that interacted with each other, and lots of systems for the for the player to to influence that would affect uh, your survival. Um, and 
with this game, we, I think we wanted to draw upon those elements of survival games that that make the world feel alive and like it has emergent properties. Um, people compare it to Don't Starve a lot, and you know we absolutely love that game. Um, but actually, most of the time in the studio, we we were talking about Breath of the Wild, which, um, you know, I think we all felt very successfully melded uh, the open world, non-linear experience where surprising and emergent things can happen um with the sense of you know purpose narrative and as neil says um heart that you know that, that comes with with having a a real story and 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 characters with the with intentions and motivations yeah i think having a mother separated from her son is really powerful and that, yeah, that so, is, is uh, difficult to, you know, a parents bond to their children. That's that that'll that's a motivation <laughs> right there. Absolutely, so think, you know, yeah. And I think you know we we intended that. You know, it's it's a very strong driver to to carry you through uh, the story. And you know, obviously, we felt mothers are underrepresented as protagonists in video games generally. You know, we're, we're not mums, obviously, but we are parents. And I think that was something that we wanted to. Uh, to pursue um and you know and and not to get too deep and heavy about it i know not everyone wants a, a side serving of, of subtext with their with their video game fun but it is you know there is meaning there for people who want it you know it is an allegorical story it's um it is about you know the, the child sacrifice that the the that kind of catches some of the headlines in in, in, in the introduction really it, it's um you know it's, it's a reference to to the sacrifices we all make uh in terms of you know, our, our children's health um, uh, as a consequence of living in a fossil fuel based industrialized society. Um, you know, and speaking for myself personally, it's about, uh, you know, the, the smoke and, you know, the, the pollution. Um, it's it's in part a reference to walking my kids along the South Circular and, and them having to breathe the fumes in on the way to school. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, so, <laughs> so it doesn't get a bit heavy. Uh, yeah, if yeah. you want to dig into those things, but it, I think, but it, but if you don't, I think um, it, it does hopefully give the world a sense of richness and and and, and meaning and backstory. You yes. know, there is some some substance to it if you Smoke if you is, if you peel away the wallpaper sort of thing. Absolutely, smoking sacrifice is not a Kirby clone. Just to be clear, <laughs> it's, it's not. I think it is that it's a it's kind of a statement of intent. Yeah. Um, to have, Although, yeah, have yeah. To, so for those people that maybe don't know, in during the introduction of the game, you have to sacrifice your firstborn son because the priests that run the village claim that this helps keep the village alive. So uh, as you start the game, you as playing as Sachi, uh, who's named after my actual wife, um, <laughs> have to actually sacrifice your firstborn son, who's named after my actual firstborn son. Um, so yeah, you, the player has to press the button themselves to do it, and we've seen people when we were demoing have have quite strong reactions to it. And I think it's it's quite a, it's quite a good litmus test actually. For yeah, you know, we had some some guys quite happy just yeah, sacrifice the baby, press the button, and and some people who, to their credit, were a little bit more hesitant about that section of the intro. Yeah, it's uh, it, uh yeah, for me, I'm just uh, I love exploring worlds other people have made, which is why I've got you guys on because this when I first saw. Uh, spoken sacrifice at EGX two years ago, I think it was now. Uh, I was just really, I, I, I almost missed, missed my next appointment because of it. Because uh, <laughs> it's just, I was, That's so, good to hear. I was so enthralled by it. And uh, I mean, sadly, I do kind of like, oh, really? I've got to sacrifice. This is a bit weird. 
Uh, okay, well, hopefully, it looks like I'm probably not going to sacrifice him, really, because looking at all the devices, because I, I did this lateral thinking thing, like, well, it doesn't look like it's actually going to be killed. <laughs> you know, so yeah. I did that too, because you did credit to you, uh, Tank, to actually give those hints, like, this is probably a transportation device, isn't it? Okay, yeah. Well, just, and, then, and I, I know, and I fed them, and that's what kept me, that's what made me hit that button, like, yeah, hopefully the queues yeah. were there. I think if it was a guillotine or something, the people would have really been uh, that, yeah, <laughs> considerably more hesitant to yes. the point of um, yeah, putting yeah. the controller down at that point. Yeah, that's, that's, that's not for you. So, first design question. Here we go. Spoken Sacrifice is more of an action-adventure than it is an RPG, as we've established its, its origins or its inspiration is from Zelda, so that's hardly surprising. And I believe that's thanks really to the advancement through equipment rather than a selection of random, seemingly random and innocuous stats as you have in character RPGs like Baldur's Gate. Why was this model chosen? If you'd well, it, was definitely, it was definitely a very conscious choice to avoid stats, numbers, bars. I mean, we, we, we went round and round with that a little bit, but in the end we wanted to be, it to be about the journey and the narrative and the world and we thought that adding stats and bars to that would potentially let you make you play by looking at bars. You know, you know how you choose a weapon in an RPG. You scroll to it and you see how many more attack points or defense points it is, and you make a judgment. But yeah. we wanted it to be a bit more organic than that because all this stuff is homemade and so on. We wanted you to look at it and go, "That sword looks better than that sword," and we wanted it to be, to some extent, intentionally opaque. Um, to make you make a kind of more real life decision about your your uh, equipment than than you would if you had an actual bar, which felt a bit like a mechanic and less like um, what you might do in reality. Right, and I mean uh, it's all kind of a bit more tactile and a bit more self evident. You know, I think it, it doesn't require further explanation as to why a character is more powerful if they're wearing steampunk, you know, Iron Man style armor and carrying a a, a giant cannon you know it's, it's it's pretty clear why you're more powerful in, in that situation and why why you're more protected it's you know it's not it's not an abstraction it's not xp or um or um, and, and i say all this you know being a great lover of rpgs actually but i think you know we wanted to make something approachable with yeah minimal use of of, of stats and bars as, as neil says really that was really just about the kind of physicality of of, of the world you're in and the, and the objects and, and the creatures and the plants and the things that you came across i mean uh, I must say, kind of, I'm not, yeah I'm tactile not reality massive. to it really i must say i'm not a massive fan of rpgs and play things like zelda that are much more arcadey in nature and oh you put some time into fallout 4 though sure i put some time into fallout 4 but i never upgraded weapons and i mean yeah i mean i've played them but it isn't, it's not what I call, you know, I never played them as a kid. I wouldn't say that I'm most at home evaluating bars and numbers. I want to, I just want to go out and play things that are arcade and fun, really. Yeah, right. I must can relate to that because I, I finished uh, Dragon Quest Eleven over Christmas and towards, <laughs> towards the end, I was like min-maxing the characters and it was just like, <laughs> I was like, I had, you know, the last, the last fight, I walked away and I had a cup of tea. <laughs> sat there and watched it play out because I knew they couldn't lo- they couldn't lose they couldn't so, so made it from that. I couldn't they couldn't lose so. can get a bit spreadsheety this you know yeah. that sort of experience I, I feel yeah. like RPGs tend to do that in that um, essentially if you were designing an arcade style game you'd you'd select 
an ideal difficulty for this fight, and then you'd have the player use the, the amount of skill that you planned out to defeat the enemy. But when it's very hard when you've got an RPG game with stats to not make it a walkover if you've done a ton of preparation. And to some extent, you want to make it a walkover because you want to make that player feel that that preparation was worth it. But at the same time, you don't necessarily want to destroy the arcade style, you know, the the reactions-based gameplay too. So I think we had a lot of, we've had a bit of back and forth over how how much the, the stuff upgrades and how much difference it was. And then whether the enemies get more powerful as you go on, which in our game they don't and how that makes the earlier levels feel when you're upgraded and you know all of this stuff is very complicated to balance and make feel satisfying at every level Mm. so yeah you've already hinted at this a little bit but i want to delve into it more um the exploration i've found in smoke and sacrifice is quite dangerous it's very dangerous you can't go just anywhere if you try you'll die very, very quickly and horribly. Uh, and you have to build yourself up and you have to steal yourself and prepare a lot before you start venturing into realms you are unfamiliar with. Was that always part of the game experience and design behind Smoke and Sacrifice? It's a good question because I think while on the one hand we certainly wanted that kind of intensity and high level of threat that you know, puts you on kind of high alert and, and, and in, you know, in terms of um, the player's involvement and investment, you know, you, you do need to commit your attention um, and be concerned about uh, what's, what's around the next corner at all times. But we also, you know, we, do, we don't have a punitive attitude to, to design either. I think we, we weren't going out of our way to, um, you know, laugh at the player and punish punish them uh, at every opportunity. That's really not our mindset. I think you know we like to create um, actually quite approachable and, and appealing, um, entertaining games that that's where, where the player can feel uh, supported and, and in control to some extent. Um, but something that certainly happens on 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 every game with every developer i think is is a tendency to make your game harder than you than you think you are and i, and I think even when you when you seek to to compensate or overcompensate for that uh you know your game is always harder than you think it is and and, and that, that kind of came out came around this time as ever um but i think nevertheless we we feel we kind of hit a bit of a sweet spot um with a level of challenge i hope at least um and and yeah, I mean, it's certainly deliberate, I think, in wanting to create a world that's open enough and that you, you can go into areas where you will be outmatched um, should you seek to. Um, and you can, you, can, you can try that out, discover for yourself that you will need to um, craft yourself some better gear uh, before proceeding further. Um, but, we, you know, we don't lock it off until you're ready. Um, we, we, we did want to allow you to to explore and, and, and find that out for yourself. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the early game, you will, it's quite hard to explore with it for the first few hours because, um, pretty much everything is dangerous, but I think, um, it's not very long. We, we do ramp you up fairly quickly. Once you get to the first crafting station and start building weapons there, you will very quickly find that the enemies that you, um, had trouble with at the start of the game, and now dispatched with two or three hits, um, 
and obviously we introduce new stuff but yeah you will i think you, if you wander up to a, one of the mini boss characters uh the first half of the game you're very likely to be killed if you haven't prepared but i feel like if you have prepared like everything there to be prepared is there so um you know there's the opportunity to to upgrade armor and weapons until that becomes relatively easy oh in addition it's not a it's not a rogue it's not a roguelike uh when you die you go back to a save point but you can experiment and then die and experiment again which was our way of trying to make it a little bit less punishing than roguelike games that make you start from the very beginning of the game again so yeah, yeah it's I, think, tough, but I feel like it's it's you shouldn't really get stuck too much. Uh, Design-wise, I think one of the one of the, the challenges I think we encountered in in terms of melding genres, um, you know, in this instance, specifically RPGs and and survival games, um, was that you know perhaps in the latter you spend more or less all your time determining your own objectives, you know, coming up with goals for yourself. Okay, I'm, you know, I'm going to go and accumulate some of this resource and craft these items. Uh, whereas in the former, you know, in RPGs, you, you're perhaps more typically being directed by objectives set for you by quest givers or, or, or by the game itself. And when you when, when you put the player in a situation where you have both those things working alongside each other, um, there's a bit of a design challenge to motivate them to alternate between pursuing both goals that they invent and, and set for themselves. Like, I'm going to go off and explore this biome, collect a bunch of resource, make, make a bunch of stuff. Um, as against, I'm going to chase the next uh, objective as specified in my in my in my quest log kind of thing. Um, but we do provide you with that opportunity, and, and again, hopefully, um, created a scenario where once you get into the rhythm of the game, you you are motivated to do that to to alternate between chasing your own goals, going off and and, and prepping and buffing and crafting more gear for yourself, and then going up against the tasks that, that the game sets for you um, yeah. through quest givers and so on. And that goes back to what I was saying earlier about the driver, like you're a mother, you really need to find your son. Right. Uh, I mean, that's, you know, all this other stuff is, you know, a means to an end and that end is vital. And uh, I can't compliment you enough for creating such an extraordinary driver and a parent separated from the child. So the third question is related to what I've just said, the story. I believe is about the human condition and how populations are controlled um, to for, to protect themselves from each other in some regards. Um, how did this inform the design of Smoke and Sacrifice, if at all? So, yeah, I mean, one of the things we started off with right at the start was H.G. Wells' The Time Machine and the idea of the split civilization, the, the underclass and so on. And um, both having loved that book, as kids, again, it's going back to being <laughs> what we liked as kids. Um, that was kind of the foundation for what we ended up building with the two societies. Um, so yeah, it's a very deliberate kind of kind of thing because then we needed someone to enforce the, the separation. So the priests and the, the evil religion came into that. So sure, yeah. and it's you know it's represented. I mean, in Metropolis, the original black and white Metropolis. You know, similarly with themes of it you know an exploited underclass you know that was an, another uh story that, that that fed into ours um and specifically i guess in our case you know it's, it's about the exploitation of child labor that accompanied the industrial revolution um and 
you know, at that time, the instantiation of a fossil fuel based um, society, um, you know, kids in coal mines and sweeping chimneys and working in mills and so on. Obviously, you know, the, the, those are sort of themes that run through um, <clears throat> our underworld. And of course, you know, ultimately, Sachi has to do more than just rescue her own child. Um, you know, in order to, to really save him, she has to change the whole basis on which um, their society is, is run um, and, and overturn the vested interests that today have prevented that, you know, in, in the form of the priesthood. So, yeah, um, again, uh, the, the, there is some quite heavy social and political subtext there, um, but it's uh, it, it's hidden under underneath a pretty deep layer of uh, exploding barrels and monsters to fight. But what's interesting is you, you, I think the design component is really that you created a two-level environment where you would go, I mean, ultimately you'd, you'd I found myself wanting to go underground more to really because that's I thought that was the source of the 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 pox on the world in my view was what sure. was going on underground was that's that was the ill and that had to be you know dealt with uh, for good or ill um, it had to be dealt with and that for me was my driver when I first started playing like it's clearly got underground I need to get underground mm. um, and that's what everything I was doing was and uh, to, to be fair, Smoke and Sacrifice does that. It does guide the player into thinking that you, you, you do need to go, but but it's going to take a while, and you might actually find that there's some things above ground that are also just as just as rotten. <laughs> Absolutely, so, yeah. and and not only that, um, the the underground world ends up supporting the overground world, so it's not necessarily just a case of. Um, of stopping oh, good, goes good on. and bad, yeah. No, there's no, an inter- no, interdependence no. there. That yeah. keeps everything in check and allows for the overworld to exist because we know, you know, when we go out and buy um, products in the shop that, you know, who knows what kind of labour was used to, to make it, what kind of pollution was caused to create it. And we yeah. live with that every day and we wanted to make that part of what we what the player experiences in the game. Yeah. Interdependency, it's, it's yeah. really important. And rather than the fear of the other, which is yeah, really absolutely. negative. Uh, For sure. But it's also about that because, you know, the, the characters on in the underground, they are related to the ones in the overground. And, um, you know, like a lot of games, we're, we're trying to also suggest that, you know, the people that are you other might be more like you than you think. Oh, yes. Ultimately, we're all related. Mm. So... Last question. I oh, know all good things have to come to an end, but here it is: the need to repair items as they are used as a core component to smoke and sacrifice. Was this an extension of the character's advancement, or is it something that you just wanted to throw in there as a tribute to Breath of the Wild? <laughs> I'm not sure whether we had it before. Breath Honestly, of the Wild or not. yeah, I, th- I think I think we had it in mind that we wanted some a system of that nature where you could repair items and and also enhance them, you know, uh, upgrade them. Um, partly, frankly, out of out of um, empathy with players, um, you know, and, and I think, you know, we've all had, had the experience of, of survival games where there's a kind of inevitability to these degrading items that, that break and, it's, and it can just be frustrating, let's face it. So I think we wanted to provide means via which you could circumvent um, that, somewhat negative experience of, you know, your sword inevitably breaking um, because it can simply be, you know, quite frustrating. Uh, but, you know, it's also making, 
making a more interesting economy because you know the items with which you repair or uh, or certainly upgrade um, individual tools and items in the game varies. So um, it lends additional and specific value to to certain raw resources uh, because you can apply them. You know you've got choices about where and how you use those resources and uh, you know which items you opt to to improve um so it made for a more interesting economy as well i guess yeah i mean just like all games that involve crafting um we wanted to make all choices interesting so um when you have a weapon that's degrading you won't necessarily have enough repair powder to repair all the weapons that you have you might have to make a choice to to let one disappear or break so that you can repair the one that's more interesting or more useful to you and of course there's also the fact that some weapons are more delicate than others so um, what we wanted to do is make the player make all these things evident in when the player fights this weapon degrades more than this other weapon so that they then have to weigh up in their head where they'd like to use this particular piece of resource because um games like this are about resource management that means making a hard choice between going a or b and then putting up with the consequences and i feel that makes that makes it more than just grind that makes it into an interesting experience where you you've made choices that have made your game into a personalized experience and you know just practically people are annoyed having to recraft things all the time it's it's repetition so i think having an having repair basically means that you your upgrades are semi-permanent especially in a game like ours without um upgrading stats um if your weapon breaks you could be back to where you were before you had the weapon and to avoid that we've we're allowing these upgrades to be semi-permanent by giving you the means to keep the weapon going as long as you want if you do things right Sure. If you yeah, if you invest the time and and you know and and again with the upgrade system whereby, you know it, it's it's about having those options. You know you might choose to use a a jelly tendril to craft your next set of snowshoes, or you might instead opt to use that same resource to repair your um, butterfly net. Um, so yeah, it's 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 a diversity of of options for for any individual resource that that we wanted to create so to, you know to create those interesting choices yeah yeah and you know in the same way the the sour fruit juice that you use to uncover recipes and gain new abilities is the same as you'd use to gain health back so then you have to make the choice about whether you want to take some risk of your low health level and get the and get the recipe for some new item which you don't know what it's going to be until you do unlock it or play it safe and drink it Oh yes, the ultimate uh, query when you're playing a fighting fantasy game, uh, mm. like, oh, do I drink the, the the potion or just leave it there? Drink it, drink it. <laughs> oh no, I've turned into a pumpkin. Excellent. Anyway, <laughs> go back to page one. You've died. So, uh, Smoke and Sacrifice by Solo Cell Games is out now on the following platforms, which we established early before we started recording: uh, Windows PC, Xbox One, PS4, and Nintendo Switch. Um, That's gentlemen, right. gentlemen, it's been fantastic having you on. You've been so open and and uh, informative about how you created Spoken Sacrifice, which is why we have you on the show. So thank you for that. Well, thanks for inviting us. Great pleasure. Thanks okay. for having us. 
I hope you got something out of it. I saw I did. And you're more than welcome to come back and talk about your next project, whatever that may be. I know you can't talk about it, which is a great, exciting time for you guys, you know, scooping things down and going, oh, this might work. Oh, no, no, it won't. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, 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 send, I said to uh, previous guests, and I said to you, uh, the creation of games is ultimately a very destructive process in that you make stuff and you go, well, that's great, but not for this game. And then you stick it on a board somewhere and come back to it later. Absolutely, yeah. Everyone's got that game full of the bits they couldn't in- insert into other games they'd like to make. <laughs> yeah, and then they end up making this other Frankenstein thing, which is just as awesome. So, again, thank you very much for your time. It's been awesome. thank, thank you very much. <laughs>